Psalm 39 this evening. It's where we begin Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now, and they have lots of Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. You could be a little bit lost on Sunday nights because we cover more than a couple of verses on the evening, and uh, it's always good to be able to read along with your own eyes. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, this evening. Psalm 39 is a uh, reminder of the brevity of life. And the psalmist is made aware in a very interesting way of how uh, brief life is. And with that realization, then he woke up to the realization that life ought to be handled and time handled is the most valuable thing that we own in life, that we have control of in life. And it really is. The, the most finite thing that you and I possess in, in life is life itself, is time. It's fleeting. It goes. We don't get it back. Anything else, fortunes or popularity or careers, all of these things can be resurrected. There's other chances related to that. But every bit of time that goes by, that's something now that is behind us. We don't get that back. And, and so this is what this psalm is about as the psalmist thinks about the brevity of life and it results in his prayer of, Lord, essentially, make my life uh, count. And so the old saying is, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's the truth of it. We come to, I think, realize that the older we get, but one of the reasons that this psalm is in the Bible is so that we don't have to wait until we're uh, old or oldish or older to understand that. So we, earlier we realized this in life, that all true meaning related to life, all purpose related to life is found in Christ found in the work of God. Everything else is wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to burn and be gone one day. Uh, but the things of God are going to live on. David wrote and he said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. He's afraid of saying something. He said, I'll restrain my mouth with a muzzle. Now, sometimes we can feel that about another person. Uh, but David feels it concerning himself, which is the healthier attitude, by the way. <laughs> so this is strong language, isn't it? I, I, if I got to put a muzzle on my mouth, I'm not going to say what I'm thinking right now. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, thinking about whatever he's thinking about here, he said, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. And so David is clearly in one of those difficult seasons in his life, which seemed to be a large portion of his life. And later on in the psalm, we're going to see that uh, the source of his uh, trials are 
Uh, he says, Lord, deliver me from my own transgressions in verse 8. and verse 10, he says, remove your plague from me. I'm consumed by the blow of your hand. And then in verse 11, when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity. So David is in, he's being chastened by God. He's being disciplined by God. He's in the doghouse. He's in the woodshed. He's in the corner. He's in big trouble. Think about how many ways that we, <laughs> you know, kind of sayings that we have to say that kind of thing. So he's been sent to his room, and, and uh, so he's being spanked, spiritually speaking. And God does that. Uh, he disciplines us, and it's one of the great evidences. The writer of the book Hebrews says that we are his children. Uh, so whom the, the Lord loves, he chastens. It's an evidence of his love for us, also an evidence that he is our heavenly father when he disciplines us. And so if that's the measure of his love, some of us feel mightily loved uh, by God. Now, this chastening that's going on, uh, it's physical in nature as he reveals in verse 10. He said, I'm consumed by the blow of your hand. So he's being spanked. He, he's trying to put in, in um, he's trying to use a physical imagery that everyone is uh, familiar with, a physical spanking, and he's trying to um, uh, use that physical imagery to kind of explain what he feels like is happening between God and him, and that is he's being spanked uh, spiritually speaking. And I think it's funny. Um, I remember when I was a kid. And I would think of adults. All I think about it was adults was, boy, once you become an adult, you can do whatever you want and you never get in any trouble again. And then you become an adult and you realize, I mean, somebody may not put you over their knee and paddle you, but uh, you, you, the spankings never stop in life. And there's always that discipline going on, and it certainly is uh, true of us as Christians. And so he know, God knows how to spank us. He knows how to humble us and take a little bit of the wind out of our sails in order to get us just to slow down and think about things that we need to think about. We notice, too, in verse 11 that the discipline was also verbal, as we'll get to that, with, when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity. And so what's happening here, and that brings us back to verses 1 through 3, and what's happening here in verses 1 through 3 is David is, though an adult, he is like a lot of children find themselves in when they are in the middle of being disciplined and they don't think that the punishment is fair. They don't think that the discipline is fair. So he's sitting in the corner. God is disciplining him. He's kind of fuming over what God is doing to him. He's very upset about it. But like... Uh, the you know kid that sits in a corner and he's in trouble and he may not dis he may not agree with the discipline that his parent is meeting out to him he knows that if he opens up his mouth and says everything that it's on his heart is only going to make things worse and the discipline will be even worse so that's kind of where he is with God he says I, there's some things I want to say here I don't think this is fair but I know if I open up my mouth I'm going to just make things even uh, more miserable uh, for myself. You notice in verse 2, and, um, and actually in, in verse 3, my heart was hot uh, within me while I was musing 
the fire burned. And so as he's sitting there in the corner, so to speak, as he's kind of forced to silently think through the reasons for his discipline. If you ever put one of your children kind of in the corner and you say, what did you do wrong? Nothing. All right, we got a cure for that, buckaroo. We put him in the corner. Ten minutes later, what did you do wrong? Nothing. Sixteen hours later, if you had... If you had one like we had. Uh, but ultimately, they kind of break because they do stop and, and get through kind of the anger and the indignation and, you know, all of the carnality. And then they do begin to start to think through why they are in the corner. And then so often they do realize the light goes on and they realize, ah, this is what mom and dad is trying to teach me. And David has that kind of a moment in verse 3 where he realizes what God is trying to teach him in all of this. And basically what the Lord is saying to David here, and and the point that he's trying to get through to him is, David, are you going to waste your life engaging in that sin for the rest of your life? Is that what you're going to do? Are you, are you not going to kick that thing out of your life like my word calls you to do that? Are you going to just hold on to that thing and demand that thing and keep yourself in the corner endlessly in this relationship with me? And, and because I'm disciplining you because I know that if you don't let that thing go, you're going to waste your life. And it's possible to be saved on our way to heaven, no doubt about it, and completely waste our life in terms of being effective for the kingdom. And so the Lord can speak to us about that kind of thing. And so David then speaks beginning in verse 4. He starts to talk about the things that he realized, uh, came to realize in this little episode that was going on in his life. The light went on for him in a powerful way. He's wasting his life in some way, and God has gotten through to him. And so he declares in verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. And the idea is that the end comes quickly in life. I mean, and, and make me to know what is the measure of my days. In other words, that I only have so many days in life and to realize that because I only have so many days in life that each one of them is valuable. So the light has gone on for him and realizing that in some way he's wasting his life here and, and here's this light going on to teach, telling him you're frittering away your life on this nonsense and, and it's only because you don't understand how brief life is and how valuable life is and that it's a limited portion to establish um, our reward and our position eternally in heaven in many respects. So learning how valuable time is, and God put him in the corner to teach him that. God can do that in our lives too. How much time can we fritter away in life and still hear ultimately... Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. How much television can I watch and still one day hear that? I'm not not banning television. I'm just asking a question. How much nonsense that related to the culture can I absolutely engage in and even what isn't sinful, what what is liberty? There's liberty to engage in as a Christian. But that I gauge engage so much time in the activity 
that I am not only not serving the Lord in any capacity, advancing the kingdom of God in the world, but I'm not being faithful in what God has called me to do. And I think it's good for us just to stop. I challenge myself just to stop and think. How much time can I waste and still one day hear that well done? And God wants, Jesus wants to say that to us as much as we want to hear it. And so he chastens David here in this way to get him to realize that life is precious. And then in verse, uh, the end of verse 4, he reminds David of how frail or how fragile life is, that I may know how frail I am. And and the idea is that David comes to realize that death could come for him at any time. Life is very, very unpredictable. And life is as fragile uh, for a young person as it is for an older person. And so he, he comes to that realization in the middle of everything and he realizes life is fragile. And, and that, and that takes, and these kind of times where God speaks to us about how we're spending our lives, where our time is being directed and makes us stop and to think about um, what is truly important in life. When we realize Boy, life is fragile and it is moving quickly. You stop and you reassess what really is important in life. So the big crisis hits or the medical diagnosis or something where in the natural realm, man says you only have this much time left now related to that. Well, there's a lot that's not very much fun about that kind of a situation. But one of the good things that happens with that is it really does crystallize what is really important in life down to one, two, three, four kind of things. And then there's the realization, I better pour my life into those four things and not into 20 things. I want to do these four things well. And so that realization that life is fragile, we could go to be with the Lord at any time, it causes us to prioritize in a way that we wouldn't otherwise do that, and that is a good thing. Uh, If you ever get to read anything by Robert Murray McShane, uh, went to be with the Lord as a very, very young man, and I believe he was in his early 30s, 31, 33, something like that, a great force for God in his generation. And even though his life was uh, relatively short, you know, about the length of our Savior's life, he wrote concerning all of this, he said, live life so as to be missed. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? There's a, there's a certain memorial service that is conducted for a person who has lived life so as to be missed. (laughs) And there's a different memorial service for the person who has frittered their whole life away about nonsense. And sometimes God will discipline us to make us think about those things. And then in verse 5, David realized in all of this that life is short, it's fleeting. He said, indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths. And a hand breath is just a distance between uh, your hand here at the base of the finger. So about four inches for the average person. And so he's saying, it's a way of saying that life is uh, short. And, and so he says, indeed, you, make, uh, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my age is nothing before you. And the idea is that in the light of you, God, in the light of eternity, my life is a blink. And certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. I'll go all the mirrors, I guess. I don't know in our house. 
And the idea is when he says man at his best, that is men and women who live even long lives. The Bible talks about three score and ten, 70 years old. And of course, many people live way beyond that. That's penalty time. Use it wisely. But even a person that lives that long will tell you, wow, where did it all go? So life is a vapor even at its kind of its best. And then in verse 6, he talks about how life is a shadow. It's empty and it's futile uh, apart from uh, being involved in the things of the Lord. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and he doesn't know who will gather them. And so you see that so often, don't we, where a person will spend their whole life uh, amassing this fortune or what would be he would consider a fortune or she would consider a fortune and it's gone in six months after they're dead uh, with the kids that don't have the character to handle that kind of wealth or something. And so um, here's this whole realization that he has is that life is empty and it's, it's futile apart from being involved in the things of the Lord. And it is. And, it, and this isn't like, okay, here's a psalm for the pagans. This is a psalm for Christians to realize that. Life is meaningless apart from understanding God's call upon my life the giftings that he's given me, and then engaging myself in, in that calling and in God's purposes for my life. I mean, otherwise, what, it, what is it? The person who eats the most pasta wins or gathers the most material things or whatever it might be in terms of how time is used. There's no meaning in that. And the, in the realization, I mean, the obvious proof of the fact that there's no ultimate satisfaction or meaning in it is just the vicious cycle that it is. So there isn't any meaning to life and, and, and true meaning, satisfaction, peace, this kind of thing, apart from serving the Lord and being engaged in his, uh, his purposes. That's the person that's rich in life. A person that lives their whole life for just a, a, amassing, you know, wealth or power or, or you know, some kind of uh, a name or something independent of God. It's just a waste of time. And as he speaks here, evidently he'd seen people with tremendous wealth. He was a very wealthy man himself, pass it on after they'd broken their back in order to amass it and to see it gone quickly. It reminds me of the old story about the the funeral is a very rich man in an English village had died. And as the hearse was going by and all, there was two older men that were standing on the sidewalk. And the one said to the other, how much did he leave? The other said, all of it. <laughs> That's the truth of it. But if we live our lives properly and we serve the Lord, then as Paul wrote, we send our riches ahead in, into an eternal uh, reward. And so this beautiful uh, lessons that he has learned related to it. Now, as I read the psalm, I ask myself, what would, why would David burst out in this song about the preciousness of life, the unpredictability of life, the shortness of life, the emptiness of life apart from God and his purposes, except for the fact that in some short season in his life, he had forgotten all of those things. 
And I'm personally inclined to believe that the chastening that David was experiencing from the hand of God wasn't over some great obvious sin or failing that was occurring in his, in his life, but for the sin of wasting time, wasting his life on things that are just empty and they're temporal and they're just shadows uh, for uh, the child of God, living his life like everybody else was in the world. And so here is Psalm 39, and in this psalm he repents of it. And then the lesson he's learned, he begins to speak about then in, in verse uh, 7, and the remainder of the psalm is essentially his cry out to God, asking for a second chance. Lord, I get it. I understand what you're t- saying to me. Now give me a second chance to use my time and use my life properly. And so he says, and now, Lord, what shall I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute and I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I'm consumed by the blow of your hand. And when, the, and when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you, take, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is a vapor. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me. And that kind of God looking at him as that stern father. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength. Let me come out from under your chastening before I go away and I am no more. Now think about, you know, uh, how often it... uh, Kind of tragically, it takes a crisis for us to realize how valuable time is, and uh, and then and then to then to treat it for the valuable thing that it is. And here, the psalmist, the Psalm 39, is in the Bible, so that we don't have to wait for the bottom to fall out in our lives and say, "Oh, now I get it." Uh, but it took this or it took that for me to understand how valuable life is and how valuable time is, and. But to read this psalm, and at whatever age we're in, to have the Lord speak to us about how valuable time is and to search our own lives for are we, where is our time being spent and is it, is it being spent in a way that we will ultimately hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Paul wrote and he said, redeem the time. And the idea of redeem means to buy it back. It's, it's to use your time as if you had to pay for it. In other words, to understand how valuable it is. Jesus said, occupy, take care of business. In other words, his calling upon our lives, occupy, he said, until I come. And so that recognition of using time in this way, maybe the psalm tonight would speak to one or two of us this evening about misdirected time that's being lost and being wasted uh, when uh, the stakes are high, not only related to our own lives, but a whole world that needs to hear the gospel yet and a whole world that needs you and me, all of us, to be in our place where God wants us to be in the advancement of his kingdom. I like what William Penn said related to this. He said, time is what we want the most, but we use the worst. Boy, that says a lot of truth in that, doesn't it? See how desperate people get for more time and, and, and then so often you look at 
at the culture around us, how we use time, and we use it so terribly. On the one hand, we value it, but on the other hand, we don't value it enough to handle it in a proper way. And so, beautiful psalm to remind us of a very, very important fact in the Christian life. Then in Psalm uh, 40, we come to a psalm that reminds us of the fact that what God has always been to us, He will always be to us. And what He has always been to us is unfailingly faithful. David wrote, and he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited patiently upon the Lord. So you see why I'm not on the worship team. And he inclined to me. So here's the song. That song that we sing comes right out of that. Well, I wouldn't call that singing either. But uh, when they lead us, it's a, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he's, now he's talking about a past deliverance that God did in his life. I waited, past tense, patiently for the Lord. And what did he do? He inclined to me. He heard my cry. And he also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. So he's in a, he was at one time in a humanly impossible situation. So anytime you've been in miry clay, remember one of the prophets in the Old Testament, because he was faithful to speak for the Lord, I think it was Jeremiah, was put down into uh, this great pit and, and was, you know, up in this miry clay up to like this. And in order to get him out, they had to put cloths and ropes and everything under him and just, you know, get him out, the suction. If you've ever like had a shoe go in the mud and pull it out or whatever you see. But if, so if you get in a miry clay, we're talking clay, not dirt or mud, you get into that up to your knee or up to your waist or higher, you've got to get some help getting out of that. So that's David's way of saying, I was in a situation where I need, only God could deliver me from it. And God did deliver him. And not only did God deliver him out of the miry clay, but he then set David's feet on a rock, something solid, and he established my steps. And not only did he do that, but he also gave David a, a song. He has put a new song in my mouth, Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust the Lord. And so he came out of that experience, and what was in his heart was a song of praise and rejoicing to God for what God had done. Now, David can just sit down. He can have an experience in life, sit down, and he can write a song. I could write a song, but you don't want to hear that song. And But... In every experience that we go through in life where God delivers us out of, uh, you know, some kind of difficult situation that we're in, every time we think about that and our heart soars, well, that's the song that's in our heart directed toward the Lord, and He sees that as a prayer. And so this is what, uh, this is what He had faced in the past, and this is what God had done for Him. And then he goes on and he, and he uh, begins to speak of, uh, in the light of what God had done uh, for him, he begins to speak now of encouraging everyone to put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor, does, uh, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. Your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I were, would 
would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Do you realize God's thoughts towards you this moment is more than you could number? So how can he do that? I don't know. He's God. He has the capacity to do that. Now, if you're like me, kind of like uh, I just always begin, my starting point is that I'm in trouble. And And then I move from there. So... So you say, all right, God's thoughts toward me are innumerable. Oh, great. But elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that his thoughts toward us are, are good. So that, that's how he's thinking. He's thinking good thoughts about us. Talk about grace. And that, that's the kind of eyes that he has toward us. And so David just calls on uh, everyone to just worship the Lord because of his uh, mercies that he shows us, because of uh, his thoughts toward us. And then in verse 6, he starts to talk about the best way to kind of communicate our appreciation to him for being so good to us when he delivers us out of those difficult situations. He said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is written in my heart. And so David says one of the best ways that we can express thanksgiving to God over how he has delivered us in the past and in his in His grace is just to simply obey His Word and to obey His will uh, for our lives. And so He's been delivered, and that deliverance that God did in His life gave Him a fresh appreciation for the privilege of being able to obey God, to bless Him in that way by obeying His commandments. And it gave Him an even greater desire to obey God. Sometimes if you've ever been in a situation where you're in a mess and you say, God, if you help me get out of this, I'll work in the parking lot. I'll be an usher. I'll clean up after this. I'll teach a home Bible study. I'll, you name it, I'll do it. You just get me out of this thing, you know. Or sometimes it, it isn't even something where we've put ourselves in a pickle. But God delivers us out and we go, you are too much. Only you and I know you didn't need to do that and you did that. And then it makes us love Him all the more and want to obey Him all the more. And so that, that deliverance of His life gave Him an even greater desire to obey God's commandments as they are recorded in the scrolls. And Jesus said much the same thing. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. That's the single greatest way that we have of blessing the Lord and saying thank you to Him for how good He's been to us is to just simply obey His commandments. Now, this passage here, uh, as it's talking in uh, verses 6 through 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he applies it uh, to Jesus. And so it's a classic uh, case in the Scriptures where a passage in the Bible has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So it absolutely applies to David's life because David had been through this experience and he was communicating, because of what you've done for me, I'm going to obey you and bless you like I've never uh, done that uh, before. And so I don't want to just follow you. And he's talking about sacrifices here. He's basically saying, I don't want to follow you um, by offering sacrifices and offerings to you at the tabernacle and all independent of a life that's lived in, 
the life that I live in private to be lived obediently to you. So he's basically saying, I don't want to be a Christian that goes to church on Sunday and then lives this sin-filled life all the way through the week. I want to, I want to do both of those things. I want to have both of them uh, right. And so the writer then, he ascribes this passage to Jesus and he's laying down a case there in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 for the fact that Jesus did not provide us with a salvation by keeping the Old Testament sacrifices and commandments, though He obeyed them without exception. He obeyed them perfectly, but by offering His life for us on the cross in obedience to the Father. So He he paid the required once and for all price that was required for the forgiveness of our sins. So the law of Moses was never intended to as a means for us to interpret earn our own salvation through good works. The law was given in order to expose us uh, as uh, sinners. And so Jesus fulfilled the law that we could not uh, fulfill. And so by salvation, um, His righteousness, His perfect righteousness is put to our account. That's what God sees when He sees us now because of our faith in the Lord. And so David says, listen, I love you. I appreciate what you've done and I respond with obedience. And then he says the second thing that he was going to do in response was to just let everybody know about God. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. Now, in some churches, there are kind of these testimony uh, meetings where uh, maybe on a Sunday night or whatever time it might be, and somebody will say, anybody got a testimony what the Lord did in your life this week? And so five, six, seven, ten people might stand up and say, here's what the Lord did. And they, they have, they're so thankful for what God has done, but they don't want it to die with them. They want, they want other people to be blessed by that witness, and so they declare that. And that's, of course, a wonderful kind of uh, of service. And so that's what David wanted to do. God's done this great thing. I'm not going to keep it to myself. I'm, I want to let other people know about it. And when God does something great in our lives, we ought to let other people know about that. And so what does he let them know about? David said, I haven't hidden your righteousness within my heart. I let people know how righteous you are. I've declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I've told people about how faithful you are and you're a saving God. And I've not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. And then in verse 11, something interesting happens because this first half of the psalm deals with God's deliverance of him previously. And now in verse 11, he begins to speak about a trial he is currently in. But he is, he's going to deal with this trial that he's currently in, and he's going to ask the Lord for help in it in the, from the context of remembering that God had helped him in the past. And it's so important for us when we hit a gigantic trial in our lives. Sometimes maybe you're something like me. You, this gigantic thing hits, boom, and it's so big it's using up all of the oxygen in the room, and then here I am dealing with it like it's the first time I've ever faced anything hard in my Christian life. And sometimes God has to pull me back. I'm not that smart. And so God has to pull me back and, and remind me, hey, Damien, we got a history together. I've been pulling you out of the miry clay since 1980. So we have a history. You're not facing a difficult time. 
for the first time in your Christian life. It's not like you and I don't have a history together and I haven't done great things for you. Start the process what you're facing right now tonight that seems so overwhelming to you, Damien, in the light of what I've always been to you, and that is faithful. This goes, all right. And sometimes without doing that, Every time we hit a major trial, it is like we're hitting it for the first time, relearning everything for the first time. So we're retaking first grade over and over and over again. And it's important when these things come to just pull back. And there might be some of you sitting in this room tonight, and you're exactly in that place. Boom, here is this thing. And God is just reminding you, remember how faithful I have been to you all along. And the Bible says that God does not change. So what He's been, He will be to us. And He is going to take care of the situation and He's going to use it to the praise of the glory of His grace within our lives. And so that's what's happening with David here. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord, as he's facing this new thing. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. These things that I've boasted in about you in the past, let them mark my life once again. And here's his problems that he's having. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. So that's more than one or two. He's in a, he's in a mess. My iniquities, so talking about his own failures and sin, falling short. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, and therefore my heart fails me. So he prays out to the Lord. Some part of what he's in the middle of is, is his own doing. Uh, some of it is not his own doing, but it doesn't keep him from crying out to the Lord for help in this. And then he prays to the Lord for protection. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. So they were mocking him and his faith in God. And then David closed with this uh, final expression of faith. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And so again, this important thing to realize is that the processing of our current trials or future trials in the light of God's faithfulness in our past. And then in Psalm 41, I love the Psalms. I mean, there's so many different things that God is dealing with in the Psalms. Psalm 40 is a reminder of God's heart for the poor. That's a good, that's a good reminder. We need to have that reminder. We've got this uh, kind of clash that goes on in our culture. And here we are, we're in a presidential election. You've got the rich and the poor and the this and the that. Everybody's being wedged against one another. It's really just a big, ugly scene. I'm checking out till I can do something about it, and that is to cast my vote in November. But, and I, but I don't want to lose life between now and then. So it's just this big, ugly thing, and the poor and the rich as well, but the poor being used as kind of a weapon in, in the whole big mess. And, and, and sometimes we can lose sight of like a biblical perspective related to the poor. We live in a country 
where we've, we've been wealthy enough uh, to be done with our money. And so we have in the past as a nation, we have developed a welfare state, a dependency upon the part of able working men and women upon government to do nothing and yet to sustain life. And that's not a healthy thing. That's not a biblical thing at all. And yet, because in some ways that pendulum swung so far within our country that there had to be a swing back related to it, and no country's wealthy enough to just pay able-bodied people to stay home and watch television. You can't have that much... No, 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 please. So, God bless you. I, I understand your heart. But you, you, you can't... You, you have to have productivity out of your citizenry. And so, so we got this thing over here, and so pretty soon people are thinking about the poor one-dimensionally as, as people that won't work or they won't try. And it's a lot more complicated than that, and it's a lot more nuanced than that. It's actually a lot more simple than that in ancient times because in ancient times you didn't have this kind of government money. We've been a prosperous country. We're not anymore. $19 trillion or so in debt. And China won't care if we don't pay that back any more than the lender on my house wouldn't care if I didn't repay that. No, we're not as wealthy as we think. And so there are going to be problems if the Lord tarries in, in, in that realm. And so we've been wealthy enough to be silly in that way. But in ancient days, there wasn't Social Security. There wasn't this government dependence. The dependence, things were built upon the family unit and the strength of the family unit. So you didn't let, you didn't let your kids grow up and wear uh, their pants below their buttocks because you depended on them to take care of you in your old age. So when they tried to do that at eight years old, you just came and said, come here, come here, come here, why I oughta, and boing. So you just, wouldn't, you just wouldn't do that because you were cutting your own throat. So it was the whole way it was supposed to be and it did a real healthy thing. And so something unhealthy has happened here a little bit by and large because now everybody says, forget the family. Who cares about the family? We just got government that will take uh, care of us. But there is, in the Old Testament, God's heart, He has a concern for the poor. And, but in the Old Testament, it was working poor. Uh, there, uh, uh, he talks about the person, and the Bible says that if you won't work, doesn't mean you can't work. That's another category. God has compassion on that. But if I won't work, the Bible says, then you don't eat. Why? Hunger is a mighty motivation toward work, and it's a needed motivation in some people. Now, I'm like a type A I, would ne- I don't need hunger to keep me going. I'm looking for something to do the next thing. Too much to do. But there, is, there are some other people that without the motivation of hunger, they might just not do anything in life. And so, but this, there is this working poor. And that's something that's real all around the world. And that's something real that's within our culture. People who are working very, very hard. But there's not enough money to fill that tank, to head back over to the Bay Area again, to finish this or to finish that or to do work and related. That's a reality. And God has great compassion on people who are working very hard, and yet there isn't enough to make ends meet. And, and so that's his heart 
And David writes a psalm uh, related to it. He said, blessed is he who considers the poor. And so the blessedness of the person who considers the poor takes them into account, has compassion on the poor, also includes the powerless, uh, the vulnerable in life. There's so many vulnerable in our culture. And what will God do? To the person who considers or is good to the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will always reward the person that is generous to the poor. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he will be blessed on the earth. And you will not deliver him into the hands of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. And so God notices when we help people out who are poor, and, and he makes sure that we are rewarded for that. And he can reward in a lot of different ways. It isn't like seed faith where you give 10 bucks and you get 100 bucks back or you give a $1,000 and you get $10,000 back. How great is it if I, here you are on your sick bed and God says, All right, I'm not going to send a check to you in the mail. I'll just raise you up off the sick bed. How much did that save in doctor bills? Or how much you say, Lord, I w- I'll give anyone half of my kingdom not to vomit in that toilet one more time tonight. And he heals us. Sorry for being so graphic. We're just drawing on history, right, in our lives sometimes. This is one of the most miserable experiences in life. God comes in and we would value that deliverance even more than money. And, and God does it. All these different ways that the Lord does that. And because David had been uh, generous to the poor, he said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So he calls out uh, for mercy. Again, he finds himself in trouble, so he's asking for help from the Lord, and he's asking for the healing of his soul uh, because of his sin against the Lord. This psalm seems to have come out of the time when his son Absalom uh, rebelled against him, uh, drove him out of Jerusalem to try and become the king of Israel. Ahithophel, who was one of David's closest friends and counselors, uh, joined Absalom in that rebellion. David seems to reference it a little bit later in the psalm, as we'll see in a moment. We say, why did Ahithophel betray David? Because David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged for the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, and Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And so while this whole thing is going, David is fleeing out of the city of Jerusalem. He hears that Ahithophel has joined Absalom in the rebellion, and his heart is smitten by his past sin. And he realizes, oh boy, this is a part of that consequence. So he's dealing with the guilt and the condemnation of his past. A lot of us do that. And so he cried out to the Lord, Lord, I've been good to the poor. I've been blessed to other people. And so would you heal my soul and what I'm in the middle of right now because I have sinned against you. He said, my enemies, they speak evil against me, of me. 
When will he die and his name perish, they say. And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. He, his heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. They're hoping for his death. And so he's saying, Lord, all these, all these people are hoping I'll die. Would you just protect me in the middle of all of this? And then he said, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, we had fellowship together. It's a very deep, close in, uh, uh, a relationship that David had with Ahithophel before it was uh, badly broken, of course, by his sin. And so he said, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. And so he calls on the Lord to ask the Lord to protect him from the bitterness and the vengeance of a man that he had sinned against. I say, boy, isn't God going to side with Ahithophel on that rather than David? No. And God didn't. Ahithophel and Absalom and all the other people that joined in the rebellion against David, they underestimated the grace of God for David. David, following his sin, his adultery, and then the murder of uh, Uriah the Hittite, for the rest of his life he would, he would pay a quiet price, the consequences that he would bear related to that. But he confessed his sin to God, he repented of his sin, and he received God's forgiveness. And he was right with God. And the fact that other people didn't want to accept that God was that gracious toward him, it put them on the wrong side of God because now David is still the king of Israel. They're trying to overthrow David, but David is still the king by God's design. So now they're up against God. I say, here's what I'm trying to say related to all of that because you were wondering. Don't underestimate the grace of God and another human being. And especially when that human being has sinned against you and maybe sinned greatly against you. But they have confessed their sin, they've repented of it, and they pay a price for their past sin in their own heart and in their own mind all the way until the day they go into heaven and then we will remember it no more. But realize that if you hold that bitterness and unforgiveness toward a person that God has forgiven and is pleased with them because they're now a trophy of His grace, and in David's case, not only to his own generation, but to all the generations of the world because it's recorded in the book. And you can find yourself on the wrong side of God related to something like that with bitterness and then incur uh, you know, God's resistance of you, which is exactly what happened to Ahithophel. And, and Ahithophel was smart enough to recognize that what, what side God was on related to the whole thing. But rather than reconcile with David, you might remember the account, he went home, he put his uh, issues in order, and he hung himself. That's how bitter he was with David. 
I don't care if God has forgiven him. I don't care what happened between David and God. I don't care about any of that. I'm not, I don't want anything to do with David. And because this attempt to take his life has failed, I will take my own life. Don't underestimate the greatness of the grace of God toward people that have sinned against us. And you know, it's a great way to remember that, is just to remember all the people we've sinned against. And how gracious they are toward us and how eager we were for a second chance and are for a second chance. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. That sounds a little Old Testament, doesn't it? God, I want you to be merciful to me. Raise me up. Make me the king again so I can pay these people back. say, wow. Is there a New Testament equivalent for that? I like that. Is there something like, you know, break out their teeth and... Rub their nose in the dirt and beat them, bust them. That's our custom. Beat them, bust them. That's our custom. I have to remember that David isn't praying this solely for himself personally. He'd been sinned against and and he had been kind of violated, rebelled against as a king. God had made him the king. He wasn't free to just throw that position away even though he felt guilt over his past sin even though all of these things had happened and he could look at it and say, the easiest thing for me to do would be just to quit this whole king thing and let everybody get on about their business. But God was, had still wanted him to be the king for his purposes. And so to overthrow him as the king would produce consequences for the nation of Israel, way beyond consequences just for David. And so David said, help me now to be restored back as as the king of Israel, and then to do what is necessary to restore order to that kingdom in faithfulness to God's call upon his life. And by this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. And as for me, you uphold me in my iniquity and set me before your face forever. And that's beautiful. He said, Lord, you know I've sinned. You know what's back there. But you know the man that I am today. And you know I'm not the same man I was back then. And you know I'm walking with you with integrity. And the word integrity means wholeness. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything about me is about you, Lord. It's not just walking with you outwardly, but my inward heart is different from you. No secret life, open life, none of this. I'm 100% what I am is is open and obvious toward you. And he had that confidence in his integrity and that God knew of his integrity and that God would take care of things even if others were underestimating the grace of God in his life. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So you wonder where that comes from, that amen and amen uh, kind of thing. There you go, right there. Uh, in in the Bible. And so we're going to praise the Lord forever. Again, it's good to be reminded of God's heart for the poor and of the powerless in society. And I want to just, I want to drive this uh, point uh, home to us a little bit just for another uh, probably two minutes or so related to our lives. We have to, we have to be biblical in in the dialogue that we're in the middle of, in the world that we're in the middle of. It's not just one extreme or the other. God has deep, deep compassion 
upon the poor in this world. You've got a great big machine called commercial Babylon that is just using people up, just like squeezing oranges, and once everything's been used up, they're thrown into a pile. Commercial Babylon has become bigger and more important than human beings. And the way that God wants it is, yes, there needs to be business, there needs to be all those kind of things, but the business never becomes more important than people. Now you look at the world economy, it is more important than people. So things are upside down. And God said there's going to be a spiritual Babylon and a commercial Babylon in the last days. And so we're going to see more and more of this use of people, abuse of people, and and all. And for us as Christians, our attitude toward the poor and toward one another related to that, it needs to be healthy. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, when they harvested their crops or they went through their orchards, they could harvest at one time, not a second or a third time. And what was left in the fields was free for the poor to come and to receive that for their own sustenance. If somebody, a poor man, came to you in order to borrow something from you, a sum of money or maybe a tool to be able to work that day, and he gave you his outer cloak as, as kind of collateral for it, at the end of the day, if, uh, if he couldn't return that money to you, you couldn't hold on to that cloak because that was his bed. And God said... You don't hold on to that. You give that back to him, God's concern uh, for the poor and for the powerless. Psalm 22, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 9, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10, You shall surely give to him, speaking of the poor, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all which you put, uh, uh, which you put your hand. Proverbs chapter 19, verse uh, 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will pay back what is given. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7, the righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such salvation. Uh, I was, uh, and, and not everybody who says that they're poor or, or is begging for money is poor. I remember one time we were... Uh, I'm over my two minutes. But I remember one time when we were downtown, I won't say his name, but he loved, God just did this great thing in saving him. And he's walking with the Lord to this day, and it's just fabulous. But he... Um, when he got saved, he just basically would go to these truck stops on the interstates in California and he would beg for money and he kind of learned all the sob stories and I'm on my way to here and this and that and look at my wife and the whole deal and everything like that. And uh, he would work, he would begin to work in the morning and he would work until he made $450 and then he'd go home. And I had that article in the paper just in the last couple of days, the guy that got arrested for something and, and, he, and he was complaining. He said, because uh, he didn't have a job and blah, blah, blah and everything. He said, I made $60,000 last year begging. So, I mean, there's a whole scam side of things. 
Now, not everybody that's doing that is scamming people, but sometimes that's all we see and we don't even recognize, wow, you know that family and the fellowship here, and I notice that they're working really hard to this, and I wonder how tight things are. I mean, just to broaden our vision for noticing a need that's gone around us. Jesus spoke in the parable of the ambitious guest. He said, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God will, we will never be, God will never be our debtor because of anything we ever do for the poor. He always notices it, and he always rewards it in this life or in the life to come. Beautiful psalm, important reminder. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the diversity of your word and the diversity of these psalms and these different things, important things that you have planted in our hearts and that you have spoken to us about in our relationship with you and as your disciples and as your followers in this world and how to process life and all the things that come our way. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. We thank you for the perspective that it has brought to our lives and these varied ways this evening and, again, the diversity of these three psalms tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the privilege of being able to study it tonight and to do so in fellowship with you. And we give you praise and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.